Good morning, everyone. Well, welcome to our study on the Israel of God. This is Lesson 2, Part 2 of the first chapter. Uh, perhaps you noticed I've cut down uh, the ground we're going to cover again. I, we're we're going to move slow in this first chapter to make sure we lay solid foundations. I think we'll be able to keep pace afterwards. I will adjust the schedule as it is online. I'll do that next week. Um, those schedules are always tentative. If I'm having a hard time outlining the section that I plan to cover, then I'll just cut it in half. And uh, so that's what I've done here. We're only going to be looking at pages 14 through 17 after a little time of review. And hopefully we'll have some time for discussion as well. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, do help us in this time to give attention to your word, O Lord. Uh, we consider your word in small pieces, typically on in the, Lord, in, in, the, in the morning service as we preach exegetically through uh, books of the Bible. We thank you for that, O Lord. But we pray that you would help us to understand this, this biblical theme of the land of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem, O God. Help us to understand these themes. And I pray that it would not be merely intellectual, O Lord, for us, but that we would also draw near to you, O God, who is enthroned in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to review part one just very briefly. Uh, if you remember the way that Robertson begins his book and his chapter is to draw our attention to the theological concept of land that's in the Scriptures. Where must we begin uh, to understand the theological concept of land? In the book of Genesis and in Eden. Uh, and so to understand the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that was obtained in the days of Joshua, the land that was secure uh, in, the days of King Je- in the days of King David, to understand that land, the land we call Israel, we must interpret all of that in light of Eden, of what was offered there, and of what was lost there, and of what was promised Adam and Eve shortly after their fall into sin. We have to interpret Eden in light of that. We have to see it as... Is kind of the first step in, a, in the restoration of something uh, that was lost. Remember all of that from, from our first lesson. The land and the experience of God's people under the Old Covenant is the second major section in this chapter. And here, Robert, Robertson begins to um, develop this theme. He reminds us that the land began with paradise, typo, uh, the paradise that was lost in the fall. Uh, he reminds us that the idea of paradise was renewed in the promise of land made by God in His covenant to redeem people from His, from his uh, fallen condition. Remember, we don't call Genesis 3.15 a covenant the way that Paedo-Baptists do, but we'll let that slide. Well, we won't because I've said something about it twice now. Um, we call it a promise, and that is what it is. It is a pro- the promise of the gospel. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant, and it all lands in the new covenant, of course. Now I'm... Sliding into covenant theology. The idea of restoration of paradise provides a biblical context for understanding God's promise to give land to Abraham. And this divine promise was restated to Moses in terms of land flowing with milk and honey. So when we consider what God did in the days of Moses to redeem Israel from Egyptian captivity, to bring them out of that land and towards the promised land, it's all connected. These aren't random things that are happening in the Bible. These are developments, right? So we can't read the Bible as if these are all just random happenings. You know, God calling Abraham, God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, God redeeming Israel from uh, Egypt, 
These are all connected things. They're developments of one story that is being told. It all begins in Genesis 1 and it finds its culmination in the book of Revelation chapter 22 and at the end of time in history. The significance of this land was revealed to Moses and three striking concepts emerge. One, this land belongs to the Lord of the covenant. This is, this is something that the Lord possesses. After all, He possesses heaven and earth. And this land belongs to Him. Two, all blessings flowing from the land come ultimately from the hand of the Lord. And three, this land is uniquely holy. We're talking here about the land of Israel that was given to the descendants of Abraham in the days of of Joshua and onward. This land is uniquely holy. But why was it holy, brothers and sisters? Why was it holy? Is the land itself holy? Is there something special about that ground? Why was the land holy? God's presence. God's presence. What made Eden holy? God's presence. What made Israel holy? God's presence. We might get ahead of ourselves here a little bit and say, what what makes us a holy people and our assembly together holy? God's presence. So, it is God's presence that made the the, the land holy. While God's presence was there as God dwelt in the midst of His people in the tabernacle and later the temple, the land was set apart as a holy land. And what we're going to see here in the second part of this lesson is that if God's presence was removed, the land would would cease to be holy. The land would cease to be holy, unique, set apart, if God's presence were to be removed from it. It was His presence that made it holy in the beginning, when the people of Israel took possession of it. And if God's presence were removed, it would cease to be holy. Can I illustrate this principle real quick with a very familiar story? Remember when Moses was tending his sheep in the wilderness and he came to a bush that was burning and was not consumed? And he said, what is this strange thing? And as he approached, what was he told to do? Take his shoes off because this is holy ground. Was it holy ground before the presence of God was there? If Moses was wandering through the wilderness tending his sheep and he happened to cross cross, um, that patch of ground, would he have violated something holy if he stepped on that ground and walked past that bush before? Maybe he had many times, I don't know. No, God's presence made it holy. And what about afterward? Did that bush and that patch of ground remain holy after God's presence was taken up from it? No. And so it is with the land. It's God's presence that made it holy. And should His presence be removed, it would no longer be holy. It would be given over uh, to common things. So at this stage, the central role of Jerusalem also came to the fore. That is what um, Robertson introduces to us here on page 14. We've been talking about the land in general, but here he wants us to focus our attention on Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It comes to the forefront in this era after the conquest, after the period of the judges, and as the kingdom takes its fullness of form, as King David comes to the throne, the city of Jerusalem comes to the forefront as being most significant. But of course, uh, this did not happen out of the blue either. It is the development of earlier themes. We should remember a very important figure who lived in the days of Abraham His name was Melchizedek, and he was the priest king 
And where did he rule and reign as priest king? Salem, which is Jerusalem. Okay, so there is a theme here. That, that location, uh, it, it was hinted at beforehand that it would be a very important location. Jerusalem would be. It was at this place, in what would become Jerusalem, that Abraham presented his son Isaac as an offering to God. Genesis 22, 1 and 2. Um, maybe 2 Chronicles 3, 1. I can't remember right now. It's a typo again in the outline. So in both cases... In the case of Melchizedek and this event in Abraham's life, the shadow, they shadow the, events of Jeru- the shadowy events at Jerusalem pointed to greater realities of the new covenant that would ultimately be realized in the heavenly priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek and in the once for all sacrifice of the Son of God, a better offering than Isaac. So here Robertson is reminding us that uh, these things pointed forward to Christ and uh, to His sacrifice. I do apologize for the typos. There are many. I was rushing to get this outline out yesterday, uh, being behind this past week. After Abraham died, the nation of Israel moved in and out of the land. Uh, so we're talking here about in the days of Abraham. The nation of Israel moved in and out of the land as a landless people during bondage in, in, in instituted by Pharaoh. They suffered the reproach of Egypt. You understand the period of time that we're talking about here, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the, the people of God here that were set apart from the nations, the descendants of Abraham, lived in the world as sojourners. They were promised this land, but they never, they, they never possessed it themselves. Uh, they looked forward to the possession of it, and we are told, as we considered last Sunday, that Abraham even had eyes of faith to look forward to something even greater than uh, the land. Uh, Paul says that Abraham was promised not just this land, but the earth. Remember that? This is how the New Testament interprets these things. Abraham looked forward to the possession of this land, and he knew that this land was just a, a little foretaste of the possession of the earth, the new heavens and new earth that would be obtained through his son, not Isaac, but Jesus. Okay, so they wandered for a time, and the people suffered reproach in Egypt. Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest, the time of the judges, the time of the kings, and the building of the temple in Jerusalem in the days of Solomon. Um, we must remember all of this, uh, this whole history. This is my just brief summary of lots of things that are said by Robertson in his book here. But we must remember this whole period of time. The, t- the kingdom was made secure in the days of David, but it really came to its high point, its high point in the days of Solomon. The, the kingdom was secure. The kingdom was wealthy and prosperous. And what was Solomon privileged to do? He was privileged to build um, the temple. The temple that David, his father, desired to build. He was privileged to build the temple. And where did he build it? He built it in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem comes to the forefront. It is the place of God's dwelling. He filled that temple with His glory. The Shekinah glory of God descended upon that place and filled that place. So the whole land of Israel was set apart as holy, given the terms of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The whole land was set apart as holy. But the special place that was set apart in the land was Jerusalem, in particular the temple, and in particular the Holy of Holies. There the glory of God did dwell in the midst of His people. Do you remember the sermon I preached a few Sundays ago where 
I talked about the good news of the kingdom of God ultimately being this, that God will be in the midst of us. He will dwell in the midst of us. He will be our God and we will be His people. This is ultimately the good news of the kingdom of God. That theme, it, it's everywhere in the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis, it was true of Adam and Eve in Eden. God's presence was there. It was a holy place, therefore, and they enjoyed commun- immediate communion with, with the God of glory. Lost, but it was regained somewhat uh, through these covenants that God entered into with Abraham and with the people of Israel in the days of Moses, and even in the time of the Davidic covenant, it's, it's expanded. But what do you see? You see a land set apart as holy. You see a particular place set apart as especially holy with the presence of God manifest there. The, the God of glory dwelt in the midst of His people, and they came to Him, they flocked to Him, they worshipped Him, and they were consecrated by Him, uh, therefore. This, uh, brothers and sisters, I, I just want to remind you, was a picture of Eden. It was a picture of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a holy place. But have you heard me say that Eden itself was a mountain Have you heard me teach this? I have taught it. Eden itself was a mountain. Eden was the mountain of the Lord, where the glory of God was manifest. We know it was a mountain because a river flowed from it. That's how things work, by the way. Rivers flow from high places to low places, and it divided at the base of the mountain. Eden was a mountain. If we were to take the time, we could trace the theme of mountains throughout Scripture. Mountains are very important in Scripture, aren't they? And where must we begin to trace the theme of mountains? Genesis 1 and 2. (laughs) Genesis 2. uh, Eden and the mountain of the Lord. Uh, And then we have mountains appear throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Again, we have... Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain. We have Moses and Israel standing before God as His glory descends upon Mount Sinai, a different mountain, not the same mountain, a different one in this case, and that is important. But then we have Jerusalem and the temple constructed on a mountain. And the people go up to Jerusalem to worship God as His glory is manifest there. And then they go back home to their places, their, their homes in the Holy Land. Do you see the picture? Do you see the theme? And then we have Christ lifted up, and we have Him ascend. Uh, the mountain of the Lord, after His resurrection, of course, He does not ascend a physical mountain, but He ascends to God in heaven, etc., etc. Do you see the theme? Do you see the importance of the city of Jerusalem and the temple that was built upon the mountain there? It, 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 this is a picture of... of, of of God's special dwelling place where His glory is manifest. And so we must see the theme. We must see the theme. But here is where Robertson goes with all of this. He wants us to see that Jerusalem could not possibly be dispossessed so long as the Shekinah glory, the visible, visible manifestation of His glory, dwelt in its midst. And he explains this on pages 15 through 16. It's really a beautiful section. I started to outline it, then I thought, what's the point of outlining it? Let me just read it. Jerusalem could not possibly be dispossessed as long as the Shekinah, the visual manifestation of God's glory, dwelt in its midst. As prophesied by Ezekiel, the Shekinah had to depart from the city before its fall, 
First, the glory of God of Israel rose from among the cherubim in the most holy place where it had resided since the day of Solomon dedicated the temple and moved to the threshold of the temple. Here he is talking to us about the, talking to us about the visions that Ezekiel the prophet saw. He saw the glory of God rise from above the cherubim in the most holy place, and it moved. It moved to the threshold of the temple, the, the entryway to the temple. Next, Ezekiel heard the whirling wheels of the cherubim that dwelt above the ark, indicating that they were on the move. So, he saw this vision where, the, where, where God is riding upon a, a, a cherub, um, upon a, a throne, but it has wheels. Why would a throne have, why would a throne have wheels? Except for that it is something that is mobile. And so he sees this vision and there are wheels and God's glory is riding upon this, this throne with, with wheels. In the third step, the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and moved along with the cherubim and the whirling wheels to the east gate of the Lord's house. Do you, do you kind of see the picture? The glory of God is on the move. It's departing. Finally, the glory of God along with the cherubim and the wheels rose above the city of Jerusalem and stopped at the mountain on the east of it, the Mount of Olives. So what are these whirling wheels and what is their significance in the book of Ezekiel? The key to answering these questions appears to be found in the provisions made by David for Solomon's building of the temple. Among other things, David left for Solomon the plan for the chariot that is the cherubim of gold that spread their wings and shelter the altar of the covenant of the Lord. In other words, the chariot with wheels was part of the paraphernalia of the ark let me go back. The wheels associated with the ark came to symbolize the fact that God's presence was mobile. It could not be presumed that He would always remain within the temple. So the chariot with the wheels proved a fitting symbol that anticipated Ezekiel's message. We should remember the covenant that God made with Abraham and Moses. We should remember that it was in some senses conditional. It was conditional. It was a covenant of works. The people would be blessed in the land and they would remain there if, if what? If they obeyed. The covenant of work, the covenant of, of old made with Moses and Abraham is not exactly like the new covenant, which has no conditions attached to it for us. That is a covenant of grace purely. But the old covenant was conditional. God would dwell in the midst of his people and he would bless them with his presence if. That's such an important and very basic thing to notice. These promises made to, to Abraham and the children of Abraham concerning the land and their blessing in it were conditioned upon their obedience. And here Robertson is wanting us to see that even the construction of the temple itself and this vision that Ezekiel saw concerning the glory of God on the move, it's connected to that. God would depart from this place and from His people should they transgress the covenant. Of course, He was mercy, merciful to them because they transgressed the covenant from the very beginning. He was patient with them. He showed mercy and compassion to His people for a very long time. But eventually, the people did go into exile. They were vomited out of the land just as God threatened that they would. Once the glory had departed from Jerusalem, the city was vulnerable as any other place on the face of the earth. Its consecration to the Lord was lost. And the city was no longer holy. It was neither dedicated to the Lord nor guaranteed His protection. As a consequence, the exile of Jerusalem's inhabitants could not be avoided. So the loss of the land was laden with theological significance. Here we're coming now beyond the time of David and Solomon and, and the kings that descended from them to the time of 
the exile, the Babylonian captivity. And that has theological significance. Those who once had been God's people may become lo ami, not my people. This is Hosea 1.9. So these people who were once called God's people had become not my people. Because this covenant was breakable, it was a covenant of works, uh, these people, just as they had been gathered in, could be cast off. But we are to remember that the history of God's people under the Old Covenant did not end with exile. At God's appointed time, the chosen of the Lord were graciously granted the privilege of returning to the land. We may see Ezra 1, 1 through 3. They came back as a small body of only about 50,000, so just a very small number of people compared to the great multitude that had left Egypt and had grown in the land in, in, in the days of the judges and the kings. Uh, so a very small group of people. And remember they built, rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed and it was only a small replica of the original temple. See Ezra 3, 10-12. Do you remember that story? When the temple is finally rebuilt uh, with, with much struggle. The temple is finally rebuilt. What did the old people do? Do you remember how they responded once the temple was done? They cried. Why? Because they remembered how glorious the formal, former temple had been. What did the young people do? They only rejoiced because all they had known was exile and captivity. Uh, so, yes, God graciously brought the people back into the land. Uh, they were small in number. They did rebuild a small replica of the original temple. Um, but God was gracious to them. And then Robertson points out that God's prophets in these days were not distracted from their vision of the greatness of the Lord's redemptive work. They painted a picture of land restoration so glorious that it cannot be contained within the boundaries of the old covenant forms of realization. Uh, this is true of the prophets who ministered before the captivity, during, and, and after. They point forward to a restoration of the land that just far transcends anything experienced under the Old Covenant. We may also say that they pointed forward to a restoration of the temple that also far transcended anything like what the original temple was in the days of Solomon. They used the language of land, they used the language of temple, they used the language of people, but they speak in such a way to insist that God, His plans and purposes are, are to do something far greater than what was ever done under the Old Covenant. Uh, and so we should look at a couple of examples of this. Uh, for example, in Zechariah 2, 1-5, uh, the prophet describes Jerusalem, a future Jerusalem, as being a city without walls, with a wall of fire about it. So no physical walls, but a wall of fire about it. And with the glory of the Lord within. You may read Zechariah 2, 1-5 on your own. But nothing about Old Covenant Jerusalem would match that description. Zechariah is looking forward to something much greater, a Jerusalem that is much greater than any earthly Jerusalem could be. Uh, consider also Isaiah 2, 1 through 3. I stumbled upon this text myself. I don't think Robertson mentions this text, but listen to this. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. Are you guys tracking along with this? The temple had already been built on the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem, but Isaiah is saying, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So, so what is this? Is the mountain in, in Jerusalem going to grow? Are there going to be earthquakes that send it higher than the Himalayas? <laughs> higher than Everest? No. <laughs> this, is this is prophecy. This is a symbolic language that is being used here. But it's going to become the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nation shall flow to it. So just as the people of Israel under the Old Covenant journeyed to Jerusalem and came up to the temple to worship and went back to their homes, well, in the latter days, the nations, not just the people of Israel, but the nations shall flock to Jerusalem as it will be exalted as the highest of the mountains. Many people shall say, shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When do you think this was or will be fulfilled? Anyone? What is Isaiah talking about? When, when does this come to fulfillment? Revelation 22, ultimate fulfillment. I was going to say there is also a sense in which it's fulfilled in the church today. People of all nations coming into God's kingdom. Correct. And that is true of all of these prophecies. They have an initial fulfillment in Christ Jesus, in the new covenant, and in His church assembled, and in the kingdom that has been inaugurated. And they have ultimate fulfillment in the consummation and in the kingdom uh, that will be brought to, to, to its consummation then. It didn't say that well, but it doesn't matter. You get the, the point. That's true of all of these prophecies. The New Testament picks them up and says, this prophecy and that prophecy and this prophecy and that prophecy finds its yes in Jesus. He has fulfilled these things. In His first coming and in the inauguration of His kingdom, and in the inauguration of the New Covenant. These prophecies find their yes in Jesus. All the law, the prophets, and the Psalms find their fulfillment in Him. We'll get to that in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Um, so, there's a twofold fulfillment. Listen to Zechariah 2, 1-5. I said you could read it on your own time. We'll do it together. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and it will be to her, and I will be to her a wall of fire. All around her declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Uh, so that is the full uh, citation of the Zechariah passage that was mentioned just a moment ago. Again, we might say, when does this find its fulfillment? Uh, in a twofold sense, it, it is here now. Um, it describes the Jerusalem above as it is in heaven. 
the heavenly Jerusalem, we approach it, we approach that temple and that Jerusalem each Lord's Day as we assemble for worship, but it will find its full consummation in the new heavens and new earth. And, and this is what the, the book of Revelation is picking up upon. The, the visions that are shown to John there in Revelation 21 and 22 are all rooted in this imagery, and we must see that. So there is a kind of twofold or a two step fulfillment to this prophecy as well. The reconstructed temple would manifest a greater glory than Solomon's magnificent structure according to Haggai 2.9. And here it is uh, written out for you. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And then Robertson says, in fact, this extravagant picture of a city without walls, but with a wall of fire about it, with Gentile nations streaming into its confines, breaks the bonds of the old covenant images. How can images such as these find their fulfillment? The answer is they find their fulfillment in Christ and in His kingdom, which is present now, which was inaugurated His first coming. They find their fulfillment in the consummation of His kingdom at the end of time. I wanted to also read Zechariah 8.20-23 as an example of one text that speaks of the nations flowing to the city of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go up at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a beautiful picture. So ten Gentiles are going to grab a hold of the robe of one Jew and say, We want to go and worship your God. The Lord is with you. We want to worship Him. Again, I ask you, when, does this, when is this fulfilled? In Christ's first coming. I mean, we do see, even in the, in the Gospel of Luke, we have already seen it, that as Jesus preached that sermon on the plain, there were Gentiles that came to Him to hear Him preach. In fact, he made this, the, the, uh, the central place of his earthly ministry not in Jerusalem, but up to the north near to the border of the Gentile nations. I think that's very, it was very strategic uh, that he made that his center of operation. At first, he's ministering at the gateway to the nations. That's what he's doing. And this, of course, connects to all that was said before, and it connects to all that would happen later as Christ would commission his Jewish disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And what do we see in the early days of the church, except for that many of the ethnic Jews rejected Jesus, whereas the church was filled with, with what? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Like all Old Covenant shadows, these glorious prospects have been realized in the days of the New Covenant, when people worship neither in Jerusalem nor Samaria, but wherever in the world the Spirit of God manifests Himself. I chuckle here because this is just so obvious. It is just so obvious. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with that Samaritan woman? Well, we have a disagreement. We Samaritans and you Jews, you know, your people say that God is to be worshipped in Jerusalem, but our people say He's to be worshipped over here, right? Uh, which is it? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. 
the days are coming and are now here where neither on this mountain or that will we worship the Lord. We will worship Him in spirit and in truth is what we will do. Where do we worship? Not that mountain over there, and I point now, are my directions correct, to the east. We don't worship at that mountain over there. We don't worship at that temple over there. We worship at this mountain. And at this temple, as I point heavenward, the heavenly Jerusalem is where we worship under the Old Covenant. And we worship God who resides in His, in His heavenly temple, you see. Because the way of access into the Holy of Holies has been opened up for us. So we worship in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain or in that. There is no holy land today. There is no holy land. There is no holy temple. The Shekinah glory of God has left that place and did so 2,000 years ago. That is why Christ looked at that temple and spoke these words saying, I leave you now desolate to the temple. He said it. That place was committed to destruction. And it was destroyed in the year 70 AD. Only the foundation remained. Christ declared that place desolate. Why? The glory of God had departed. The old covenant order was done with. And a new covenant had come. And that new covenant is not made with any ethnicity. It is made with all of God's elect who trust in the promised Messiah. I know this is difficult for some of you to hear, <laughs> but this is the plain, plain teaching of the New Testament. And what I want you to see is that this is also the plain teaching of the Old Testament. It is not as if Jesus came and said, you know, the Old Testament was pretty cool for a while. We're going to do something new. No. It is that Christ came in fulfillment to the Old Testament. He interpreted the Old Testament with precision. He taught His disciples to do the same. And the Christian church, the Orthodox Christian church, has been doing the same thing throughout history. Interpreting the Old Testament correctly with Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of these scriptures, you see. And yet there is a big problem in modern evangelicalism today where the Old Testament scriptures, especially as it pertains to the land and people of God, are being interpreted through eyes of unbelief. It's a big problem. And you hear me talk about dispensationalism all the time. I do it for a reason. It's a big problem in the church. This premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational way of interpreting the scriptures is a radical distortion of the truth of God's Word. I am not saying that those who hold to these views are not brothers and sisters in Christ. I think they could trust in Christ truly despite their really bad theology and despite their mishandling of the Word of Truth. Thanks be to God for the mercy and grace He shows to us. But I am saying that it's deeply problematic that it robs us of these precious themes, these precious truths that it robs us of a full appreciation of what it is that Christ has done for us to bring us to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the, into the heavenly Mount Zion. It robs us of the appreciation of what will be of ours at the end of time. I was thinking this morning, kind of as I was preparing my mind for teaching this lesson of my time at Moody Theological Seminary, which I do thank the Lord for. 
near to the end of that time, I, I, had, I was under the oversight of one professor in particular, a very good man, a very godly man. And there was kind of a, an exit process to go through, a debriefing of sorts as I finished my program and uh, prepared to, to graduate and to move on. And so we were talking about where I'm going and what I'm doing and where I'm at theologically. And I was already understanding this. And I bring this up because Moody is a dispensational school. Um, and decidedly so. And I began to share some of this stuff. And he, he did warn me of, of falling into the, the trap of replacement theology. He did so very graciously, a really good, godly man. Have you ever heard this term, replacement theology? See, it's this idea that the church replaces Israel. And it sounds bad, replacement theology. Do we hold to replacement theology? It depends on what you mean by it. It really depends on what you mean by it. I don't like the terminology. I think it has some bad connotations to it. But it depends on what you mean by it. I think what we hold to, and I did say this to my professor back then, I said, I don't really like the term replacement theology. I do prefer the term expansion theology, though. I think another good term would be fulfillment theology. That's a biblical term, right? Um, It is not as if God was doing this thing with Old Covenant Israel and then decided to scrap that and to replace Israel with the church. It's not as if he had concern for the Jews under the Old Covenant, and now he doesn't have any concern for the Jews anymore. So we're going to the Gentiles. That's contrary to what Paul says so clearly in in the book of Romans. So what is this? But there there, there is a sense in which the church does replace Israel. If you were to ask me the question, who is in covenant with God today? Um... Not the covenant of works, not the Noahic covenant, but who is in a special covenant with God today? We would say it is no longer Israel, ethnically speaking. It is no longer them. Those covenants, the Abrahamic and Mosaic, were made with them as an ethnic people, and and, and they're no longer in force, right? Who is in covenant with God today in a special saving way? The church. All of God's elect, consisting of... Jews and Gentiles. So in that sense, the church has replaced Israel. But not in that radical, we're done with that and we're going to do something new kind of way. It's expansion theology. It's that what God was doing amongst this one people and amongst in this one place is now going to the ends of the earth. It's that the unbelieving ones under the old covenant, and there were many, they have been cut off. The believing ones, the elect, remain, and believing Gentiles are now grafted into Israel. It's expansion theology. It's fulfillment theology, because all of these things have found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This sounds obvious to many of you, controversial to some. It is not obvious to all. If I'm saying this and you already know it, Reflect more deeply upon these things and also know that these things do need to be stated clearly and publicly. That's one of the benefits of having a class like this. The redemptive reality that the Old Covenant city could only foreshadow finds its consummate realization in the Jerusalem above. 
which is the mother of us all, Galatians 4.26. This Jerusalem above is not merely a spiritual phenomenon that has no connection with the real world in which we live. It really injects itself constantly into the lives of God's people. Every time Christians assemble for worship, they join with the hosts of the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12.22. You may read it for yourself. We read it, I think, as a call to worship from time to time. Once this stage of consummate fulfillment has, re- has been reached... Uh, The consummation now is what we're talking about. Never again will the revelation from God uh, suggest that His people should aspire to the old typological ways of the Old Covenant. That line right there, you should print that and put it on your wall or something. It's not that poetic, but it's wonderful. I, I, I think it's wonderful because this idea that sometime in the future, let's say in a future thousand year millennium, This idea that we're going to return to the old ways is ridiculous. It is just counter to the progress that we see in the scriptures and in the history of redemption. This idea that we would return to temple worship with animal sacrifices, with a a human priesthood or or anything like that. The idea that Jerusalem would have significance again, I'm talking about earthly Jerusalem, or a small sliver of land. It's contrary to the whole progression of, of the, the, the story of Scripture. I get excited about this because, yes, this is what I mean when I say that this dispensational premillennialism really does rob us of, of the riches of the truth of Scripture. No, we are already beyond that. We already are experiencing something far better than that. And the only thing in our future is something far better than what we are experiencing now. Namely, the ultimate fulfillment of these things. The new heavens and new earth in which all... All is God's temple. The whole earth is. And His glory does fill all. Scott? I just wanted to say that, that I think that that's where the logical end is that it is an affront to the gospel. Because when you talk about things like you know, bringing back a sacrifice in, in a physical temple, this, that's, that's the very heart of the gospel right there. And that's where this becomes a nefarious doctrine. And, and it's no longer just a, a simple difference of Yes. I'm going to restate what you said succinctly for the sake of the recording. Um, this, this becomes a nefarious and dangerous doctrine right here because it is an affront to the gospel. It, it, it really is a, 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 a diminishment of the glory of what Christ has done. Um, and in, yeah, any idea of going back is very dangerous. Here's another quote along these lines, and this one is a little bit more uh, poetic. Progression towards... Toward consummation in the new covenant cannot allow for a retrogression to the older shadowy forms. I say yes, amen, amen to that. Brothers and sisters, there's many reasons that I've offered this class. Um, but, but one of them is that I, I, I do think that there are such political circumstances in the world today where this issue can very quickly become a very hot issue. For Christians, it, it already you can feel the heat a little already, can't you? But I, you could see how this would become a very, very hot issue in the future if go if things go certain ways politically, where the the Christian church is really being forced to get behind things and get behind peoples, and we have to do so with clear minds that are theologically informed. I said it at the beginning of the lecture last week, and I guess I'll conclude with this. Um, Brothers and sisters, 
There is no holy land today. There is no holy place except for the place where God's people assemble for worship on the Lord's Day centered around the Lord's table. There there is no holy land. There is no holy place. And so as we consider political issues, current events, our concerns, need, our, our, our viewpoints and our perspectives need to be um, really informed by questions of morality and justice. Morality and justice are to be common to all nations. These are common natural law things. And so just as we should be concerned to see our nation act according to morality and justice so too we should be concerned to see all nations of this earth act according to morality and justice. It would be the height of foolishness to say, we are bound as Christians to get behind this ethnic people no matter what because the Bible. You have not read your Bible correctly. It would be the height of foolishness to do that. So let us be aware of these things as we move forward. I need to conclude. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, O God, that your kingdom would advance, that your gospel would go forth to all nations, that you would have mercy, O Lord, upon Jews and Gentiles to bring them to faith in the Messiah who has come, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray that your gospel would go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit to save so that the church might be built up and your kingdom might expand. We know that you have the power to do this, O God, even in the midst of great opposition and darkness. Do it, O Lord, we pray, for the glory of your name until Christ returns. In his name we pray. Amen.